If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to 1 Peter chapter 3. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic everybody woke up this morning wanting to talk about, suffering. Good, okay, I'll I'll use that joke in second service too. Um, But to understand how we arrived at the talking about suffering, um, let's do a quick recap of kind of the the outline of 1 Peter so far. We've been walking through um, 1 Peter, and we talked about this idea that that Peter is writing to a group of people that are facing increasing persecution. They're not facing physical persecution, but they are facing social and political, financial persecution. They're becoming outcasts in the land where they live. And we said that that can be... um, a situation which we as American Christians are quickly finding ourselves. And so we ask ourselves, what does Peter tell them and how do we live faithfully to God just like Peter's calling these believers to do? And we said kind of the overarching theme that Peter gives them is they are to live in covenant with God. That they are to be in a, in a covenant with God, an agreement, um, a contract on steroids that is clear defined um, boundaries, clear defined rewards and punishments within this covenant and that The believer is in covenant with God because of the work of Christ. That's what allows us to enter into this covenant. And we talked about, that was kind of what we talked about the first week, and then we talked about how Peter sees the actions, the result of this covenant in the life of the believer to be holiness. The believer begins to live a holy life because they begin to reflect Christ and God, right? Who is the founder and the instigator of the covenant. And then we talked about last week how that holiness will express itself in relationships, That as Christians, we express our holiness in how we relate to other people. Which brings us to this week and kind of the midway point of chapter 3. And what's interesting is Peter's going to say kind of what the end result of our holiness will be in relation to other people. So last week, we talked about how we are to relate to the non-believers, how we are to relate to people in government, in our work, and in life, and our families if they're not believers. And this week, Peter's going to talk about how they're going to respond to us. And his answer is, it's going to be suffering. The response to us will cause us suffering. Now, if that's your sales pitch for doing good things, I think you've kind of missed the point, right? There's no marketing person that's going to tell you, well, that's what you should say to them, right? Tell the people that they do good things, they will suffer. But that's what Peter's going to say. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 13. He tells them. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this section right here, starting in verse 13 through 17, serves as kind of a preamble to the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Peter's going to go to great lengths explaining the suffering of Christians, and specifically the suffering that these Christians are going to face. And I think as we dive into it, we're going to see suffering that we as Christians in America are beginning to face. And the result is, is that Peter is saying it's a specific type of suffering. Peter's saying they're suffering for doing good. And now, the Bible talks about a lot of different trials and temptations and persecutions and suffering. 
if you were read the book of James, you see a very broad understanding of suffering. Peter here is not talking about broad suffering. He's not talking about suffering um, with maybe ill health, right? Or suffering with, um, you know, just physical persecution. He's talking about a suffering that comes because of doing good, of living a holy life, the result of the covenant. And so it's a very specific suffering that he's talking about. He's talking about the suffering that comes because doing good is hard. And that often, when we live lives as God commands, there is going to be a price for that, either internally within us or externally in how we relate with other people. And so with that said, the first thing he talks about is he wants them to understand the nature of suffering, and specifically suffering for doing good. And so the first thing he tells them, he says in verse 13, he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Right, this echoes what he said previously, which is we all understand that on some level, if people are doing good, they should be rewarded, not punished. Right, we all understand that intrinsically on some level, that good behavior should be rewarded and bad behavior should be punished. If you don't believe me, just go down to the toddler room and work a couple hours down there and you'll slowly realize that, right? That you reward good behavior and you punish bad behavior. We all know that intrinsically. But the reality is, living in a sinful world, the reality is sometimes bad behavior is rewarded and good behavior is punished. And so the question becomes that how do we as Christians respond to that? How do we deal with that? Because we understand that, first off, that's a testament to the wrongness of this world, the wrongness of sin, but it's also the reality. And so if that's the reality we're currently dealing with, we have to have an answer for it. And so Peter's answer is first to understand that just because you do good does not mean you're not going to suffer. No matter what Joel Osteen or, you know, people who are going to preach a health and wealth gospel, right, tell you, having faith in God and doing the right thing does not always mean life is going to be easy. No matter what we try to tell our kids that doing the right thing is going to lead to good things for them, we also tell them that they do the right thing regardless of what happens to them. In fact, as we understand it, this is actually Peter expressing how Christians make decisions. Because the truth is, as Christians, we do not make decisions based off what the end result is. I'll give kind of a a silly example and a fun example, but a toddler does not get to lie to help protect their friend. Biblically speaking, that's still wrong, even if it protects their friend. Right? They are biblically commanded to tell the truth. As Christians, we do what's right and wrong based off the commands of God, not based off the end results. Now, we understand, biblically speaking, that doing what God commands is probably better in the long run. In fact, we know it's better in the long run. But we understand that, that we determine what's right and wrong based off what God commands in the moment, regardless of what the outcome is. And so what Peter is kind of telling them is that they have to determine that they will do right regardless of what comes to them. And so what chapter 3 and really into chapter 4 makes clear is that doing good is going to lead to suffering for these Christians. And so why? What about the nature of suffering? What about the nature of doing good is going to lead to the suffering? And it comes to an identity question. You see, Peter puts, and he's been doing this the whole letter, he's putting the Christian in covenant with God in contrast to the non-believer in the world. And in chapter 4, he highlights 
the way a non-believer thinks compared with how a believer thinks. Look at chapter 4 with me. And starting in verse 3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinkings, parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So look at how Peter contrasts this. He talks about these Gentiles, which really, in the, in the context of what he's saying, represent the unbelieving world. Because we know that he might be talking to Gentile Christians, and so he's using Gentiles to show the idea of unbelievers. And he talks about unbelievers that live with the guiding principle of what they, whatever they desire to do is what they should do. The guiding principle for the world is I determine what's right or wrong, I determine what feels good in the moment, and that determines what I do. And so if my passions lead me to do that, right, that is what I do. I use the joke with my students to highlight this in the opposite of the worldview, right? Our world says, follow your heart. The Bible says that's the last thing you want to do because your heart is sinful. But our world teaches that whatever you're passionate about is what you should do, right? In fact, if you listen to the advice given to students or to kids, right, if you're passionate about that thing, well, that's where you should go work. Right? If you have a passion for art, well, go find a career in art. If you're passionate about welding, go find a career in welding. And not that our passions are bad. In fact, we understand biblically that our passions have a specific role to play. But what Peter's saying is, is the world lives by its passion. The guiding principle for the world is whatever it's passionate about. And as our culture shows us, right, passions can change from moment to moment. There was a story this week of an author who was a celebrated author, um, wrote The Handmaid's Tale. And this, this woman was celebrated by abortion advocates for her, for her novel. And she came under attack, and, and they tried to cancel her this week um, because she said that a woman is a woman and a man is a man. And so she literally went from one day being celebrated by the culture to the next day trying to be canceled by the culture because the passions of the culture had changed. And so Peter talks about these people, and he, he describes them in such a way that you get people who from moment to moment, second to second, their attention changes, their focus changes, what they care about changes, what's right and what's wrong changes, and you get this idea that they're constantly shifting. And the contrast in the life of the believer is somebody that's sober-minded and self-controlled. Somebody that's rational, that thinks things through, that takes things, right, in an eternal perspective with the correct idea and thinks them through and does not what they want to do, but does what is right. And so Peter contrasts these two things. He says the Christian, being sober-minded and self-controlled, is going to do good deeds. And that serves as a testimony to the world that they're living incorrectly. And so think about this, right? Nobody likes to be called out. Nobody likes to be told that what they're doing is wrong. Nobody likes to hear, well, you did that wrong, and you did that wrong. 
right? That's why in workplaces, we spend so much time doing progress reports and telling people, how do you talk to people about issues and conflict resolution? Because nobody likes to be told they're wrong. And a Christian's lifestyle should tell the world that their way they're living is incorrect. The deeds that a Christian does should testify to the world that the world's deeds are sinful. And since nobody likes to be called out, right, the natural response is going to be to punish the good deeds. Because the only other option is to acknowledge that your deeds were wrong. And so the world is going to seek to put suffering on the Christians, and it becomes hard to do good. You say, Nick, how do you know that's true, that, 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 that these people are going to call out, and they're going to feel called out by what the Christian does? Because of what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15. He tells the Christian to be prepared to answer the questions of the non-believers. He says that the good deeds that a Christian does are going to lead to natural questions from the, belie- from the unbeliever. And the Christian must be prepared to answer those. You see, a Christian reasons and makes decisions differently than the world. And so, by nature, a Christian is going to live in opposition to the world. And the world is going to malign, to use the words Peter uses, It's going to punish, it's going to dismiss, it's going to do everything it can to downgrade the good deeds that the Christian is doing and to make it difficult for the Christian to do those good deeds. And so by nature, a Christian should live in suffering. Now, there's also, that's the external part of suffering, the nature of suffering for good deeds. But Peter also alludes to an internal part. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Forever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. As a Christian, it should be a challenge to do good. And you say, wait a second, we're called to do good. We're supposed to do good. Yes, but the Bible makes it clear that as Christians living in human fleshly bodies, it is a struggle to do good. Now, the power, for that, the power to overcome that struggle comes from the completed work of Christ, but it should be a struggle. And so here's the reality, too. It's not just an external suffering that the Christian has when they're, they're doing good. There is that. Right? The world will put extra suffering on the Christian, but there should be an internal struggle within the Christian to do good, and that should be a suffering. In fact, in, in talking about this this week, we were talking about it in, in staff meeting, this passage, and we made the comment, in some ways, every part of a Christian's life should be marked by internal suffering. A Christian should always, in every part of their life, be examining, am I actually suffering in this way of life? Because as Peter makes clear here, in every part of our life, we should be slaying, right, putting to death our fleshly passions and doing the will of God. And the Bible makes abundantly clear that is not what we, by default, do. By default, we do what the flesh desires, And so in our life, we should constantly be asking ourselves in every area, big and small, is this suffering? 
is there is a sense in this in where I'm constantly feeling like I'm doing the will of God, not doing what I desire. And then here's the, the beauty of this, and we would understand this from earlier in First Peter, is that as we do that, as, as, we, as we die to those things, those fleshly passions, we become more like Christ, right? And obedience becomes more natural, and then we find more areas that were disobedient, and this process starts all over again, right? That is what we call sanctification, And the Bible makes really clear that until Christ returns, for every Christian, that is an ongoing process. That process never stops. We are continually sanctified. And so there's an internal aspect to the nature of suffering for good, just as there's an external aspect to it too. And both these combined lead to this idea that that, that a Christian is going to struggle to do good things, that a Christian is going to feel pressure to do everything but the good thing. And so then the question becomes, well, then how does a Christian continue to do good? If internally they're struggling and externally there's a pressure, how does a Christian continue to do good? And that's where Peter wants them to understand the connection behind suffering. That suffering serves as a connection. You see, because what Peter is going to tell them is that we must be like Christ in our suffering. You see, Christ suffered in the flesh. This is extremely important to us. You see, the Bible says in multiple places that God is spirit. God does not have a physical body. God is not flesh and blood like we are flesh and blood. But Christ, being fully God, took on flesh for us and suffered as a human suffers. And think about this. This is really important. No one suffered for doing good more than Christ suffered for doing good. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. Now, how do I know that's true? Because he did not sin. So no one did more good than he did. And we know the ultimate act of good was his dying on the cross for us. The ultimate act of suffering, right? Dying for those that did not deserve to be saved. And so for the Christian, right, our suffering serves as a reminder to look to Christ and what he has accomplished for us. That's what he's saying at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1. And Peter reinforces this in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Verse 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The idea being, right, that for a Christian, our suffering is not just looking to Christ, our suffering is in Christ. We are reflecting our Savior by how we suffer. Right, this is part of what Paul, Peter is saying in, in chapter 3. He's telling them, right, part of what it means to give an answer to the hope that's in you, part of what he's saying is, is that your life should be lived such a way that when you suffer, you point people to Christ. It's not just in what you do, but in how you suffer and how you deal with the, the internal struggle and the external suffering for doing good, you point people to Christ. Why? Because you say, the only reason that I can have hope in my suffering is because Christ suffered on my behalf. Christ paid the punishment on my behalf. Christ died for me. And so my hope in this 
trial, in this circumstance, in this suffering, is not in myself, it's in what Christ has accomplished. And so we suffer for Christ, we suffer on behalf of Christ, but we also suffer through Christ and with Christ. Right? And we think about what we read in Hebrews, right? Where we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Right? Christ was tempted. Christ didn't just feel the external pressure to not do good. Christ felt the internal pressure to not do good. Christ faced temptation just like we face temptation. In fact, there's a famous um, author who, who wrote about the idea of temptation and, with, and withholding temptation and resisting temptation. And what he said is this. He said, every single person has never faced the fullness of temptation. Why? Because every person has sinned. And when you sin, you've not faced the fullness of that temptation. You've given in to it. But Christ has faced the fullness of temptation. He's faced every temptation, all of it, and he did not sin. And so when it comes right, to resisting temptation internally not to do good, we look to Christ and understand that it can happen, that we have the same power inside of us that resisted temptation in the wilderness. The same power that enabled Christ to resist temptation indwells inside of us. And so we understand by looking to Christ that our suffering has the right perspective, but we can also then power through. We can persevere through our suffering. And we can do what verse 13 tells us, which is to rejoice. And so I said that the beginning in the middle of chapter 3 is kind of a preamble to the entire opening, the entire section on suffering. And then Peter concludes the entire section with a repetition in verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, for, for Peter, this is the entire application of everything that he said when he said, Be holy as God is holy. This is the capstone to it all. To entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now here's what's really interesting about this. This is not fatalism. Here's what I mean by this. This is not Christians saying, but we don't control anything. God's in complete control. So just whatever happens, happens. We do whatever we want. Right? We just live life and and it's all going to happen. Right? God is completely sovereign. Peter is acknowledging that. God is completely in control. Nothing happens outside the will of God. But what Peter's saying is that it does not excuse man from the responsibility for his actions. God's sovereignty does not allow man off completely free to do whatever he wants. Man is still responsible to God even as God is sovereign. And so for the Christian who is living in response to what God has done in him and for him, A Christian lives in such a manner that he reflects that truth. And so he lives knowing that God is sovereign, but he lives in such a way that he reflects the goodness of God. And he trusts that God will use his efforts in a way that goes above and beyond whatever he could do. And he entrusts that his efforts are done in a way that is true and faithful to God. And so he entrusts his soul. He says, says, it's not about me. It's not about what I desire. It's not about what I gain out of it. Right? It's not about how easy my life is here. 
I entrust that whatever suffering internally, whatever suffering externally I face for doing the right thing, that ultimately in the long run, that will be worth it. And even if it's not, it's what God has called me to do. In preparing this passage this week, I I thought of a conversation I had with a gentleman um, a couple weeks ago that I thought perfectly encapsulates this passage and really drives home what it means to live as Peter is saying we're supposed to live here. I was speaking with this gentleman, and his mother was starting to get older. Um, Her health was failing. Um, And this gentleman had been struggling kind of what to do. And as I'm sitting here having coffee with him, um, he just starts to break down and cry. Because his understanding of, of 1 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy to command the families to care for their own families, their own mothers, right, widows, is he understood that, that for him that meant that he had to sacrifice some of his work, some of his own family time to take care of his mother. And it was going to be a sacrifice, a major sacrifice to do. And what's really interesting is as he's telling me this, he starts to break down and cry, and he says, he says, I get asked all the time why I won't just put her in a home or put her in assisted care. And he goes, because I wouldn't be faithful to God. It was suffering for him. There was outside pressure. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of time. Um, It was not pretty work. It was not the cleanest of work. But he understood that God had commanded him to take care of his mother. And so whatever suffering he had, he he goes, I don't know exactly how God's using this, but I trust him to use it for his purposes. You see, he entrusted his soul to a faithful creator while he did good. He understood that he didn't get to determine what's right and wrong, what's good or bad. He just lives in command to his master. You know, we spend a lot of time debating about what we should do, what we shouldn't do. We spend a lot of time arguing about what's wise and unwise. And in reality, I think we see the biblical model is we should spend a lot of time doing what God has commanded because we know that's good. And so we prioritize that. That's part of what Peter's telling them here. Prioritize doing what God has commanded, doing the good that God has commanded both in your own life, internally doing good, right, and living it out among other people in relation to other people. And so you do good. You live that out. Now as you're sitting there, maybe you're not a Christian, and you're thinking about all I've shared with you today, and you think, man, he's made a really compelling case for following Christ. You suffer internally, and you suffer externally. You face persecution and hardships, right? You don't get to do what you want to do. You have to do what God wants to do all the time, right? Really compelling case for following Christ, right? 
Again, it's a good thing I don't have a marketing degree because I'm definitely not using it. But here's the great thing about it. We do not measure the worth of following Christ by what this world has to offer. In fact, the Bible tells us the gospel is foolishness to this world. It's folly to this world. The world looks at what the gospel offers and it says that is foolishness. Why would you give your life that? Because here's the reality. As Peter said, the world lives its life passion to passion, moment to moment, sin by sin. And so to a world that is perishing, a life raft is foolishness. Because they can't see beyond their own hand. But the reality is, there is great hope in Christ. In fact, Peter started his letter by telling the believers, reminding the believers of the living hope, Jesus Christ. And so as you sit here this morning, if you're not a believer, let me tell you that yes, following Christ will lead to suffering. It will be hard. It will be a challenge. Your life may not be better on this earth because you follow Christ. There are believers around this world, there are believers all throughout history whose lives on this earth have been worse for following Christ. But I can tell you this, that when they died, their lives were better because they followed Christ. You see, we must put our, pers- our sufferings in perspective. We suffer temporarily, but we have a glory that is eternal. And so if you're not a believer this morning, I urge you, I plead with you, turn from your sins, from your own passions, repent of your own rebellion, and trust in Christ to save you. Trust in the completed work, what Jesus accomplished on the the cross, and be saved this morning. If you're a believer here this morning, I plead with you and I urge you the same thing. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ this morning. Not for the first time, but renewed again today. And commit yourself to doing good. Understanding that your power, your focus, your strength to do good comes not from yourself, but from Christ. But look to what God has done and do good. And so as the worship team comes this morning, to lead us in an invitation. My question is, will you respond? I'll be down here in the front. Will you respond to God? Either believing for the first time, confessing for the first time, repenting for the first time, seeing Christ as your Savior for the first time. Or maybe it's for the hundredth time or the thousandth time. But you commit yourself to doing good this morning because that's what your Savior has called you to do. And so how this morning will you respond to the word of God. This is a hymn of invitation, so I encourage you to stand and sing. I'll be down here in the front if you'd like to talk.